Look with me at 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Back to verse 5. Paul says, you are to deliver this man to Satan. And if he had only said that, one might be hopelessly alarmed. But he doesn't stop there. He says, do so for the destruction of his flesh, the physical earthly reality of his person, that he might begin to experience the fleshly, personal, physiological realities of living in sin. Turn him over to Satan that his flesh might experience that ongoing destruction in a, an accelerated way. Why? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. See, that's the point. That's what we've been dealing with now. Today we'll make four Sundays in a row, that people would be restored unto the person of the Lord. And this is, as you well know, an unpopular topic. It's more, more than just unpopular. It's untouched. People will say things and think things like, well, oh, how harsh. Really? Really? Telling people what they need to hear to spare them from an eternity of torment while it might dent their pride, while it might expose their sin even. Well, it certainly will expose their sin. Why? Because out of love for them, we want to see them go to heaven and not go to hell, to put it plainly. Go back to verse 6. Your boasting's not good. What boasting? Well, that we're a church. You know, we're in the Lord. You know, they're boasting, and he even says they're arrogant. How are they arrogant? Because they're willing to claim the name of Christ 
while not addressing those who claim the name of Christ, who clearly defame the name of Christ. It's not a matter of hatred for those folks. It's a matter of love for them. I love this illustration, don't you? We see it a number of times throughout the Scripture used in different ways. Here he says, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? What does he mean by that? Well, you know what leaven does. A very small amount of it causes a lot of results in the baking process. And the idea is that when there is a sinner unaddressed in the body, it poisons the body. If we're to be known by our love one for another, and there is even one amongst us who maintains his sinful mindset, not just about sexual immorality. This just happens to be the case point here. But no matter what the sin is, and Paul gives a a short list of categories here. Why? Defames the name of Christ. It eliminates evangelism. And it unlovingly ushers the guilty party into an eternity of suffering. All under the guise of tolerance. and Some would even call it love. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. What does that mean? It means worthless. It means you're having no influence. You're not doing what you need to do, so there's no dynamic going on. There's no powerful process by which the Lord would otherwise be using you if you would be faithful to cleanse the church. And then he goes deep into the root, really the foundation of our soteriology For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Don't forget that. This is the core issue. The sacrifice of the lamb, the atonement that accomplished the forgiveness of sins. Don't forget that. Don't forget the gospel. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, deal with the malice and the evil. Deal with it. Everybody. He's not just talking to leaders or pastors here. But with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth should conjure up thoughts of Ephesians 4.15, uh, speaking the truth in love. Well, last week, We started this look at Matthew 18. We saw that Jesus shows us there that hard-hearted spiritual children need to be rescued so that we may rejoice to see them restored. Sadly, it's common for a person who's had some significant involvement in the body, maybe even some regular involvement in the body to show himself or herself to be unfaithful in some instances, to be shown to be an unbeliever. So our efforts uh, with this were to point out what Jesus is drawing our attention to here, and that is that heaven is for those who reflect the humility of children. He says to the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? After calling a child to himself, he says, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so there's this element of a child's persona, his makeup, that's an 
necessary and natural recognition of the fact that there are things that he cannot do. And that's the, the humbleness, the humility that Christ is speaking of here. He's not saying that children are pervasively humble. And if you know any, you know that. We're conceived in sin. But there's this inability, this awareness of one's inability as a child that they need big people to do things for them. And so the second point last week from Matthew 18, beginning with verse 6, was that hell is for those who neglect spiritual children. And it's not just those who abuse them. It is those who neglect them. This chapter is a large portion of a sermon. And when Jesus gets to that place, he does so after attempting to nurture in the minds of those who are listening in and understanding that when a person comes to know Christ, he's an infant. And he needs help along the way. And the the modern evangelical church doesn't much operate that way. We treat people as spiritually mature because they're maybe older than 18. And it's not just a tragedy, it's disastrous. Maybe even worse is that person who has professed to know the Lord for a handful of decades and shows little or no legitimate love for the brethren or a devotion to righteousness, but a passionate devotion to doing stuff. It's much too easy to just assume that that person is in fact a Christian because they show up some of the time. Hell is for those who neglect spiritual children. Now, what did we mean by that? It's a complete disinterest in discipleship. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Where do we get this idea that Um, hell is for these folks. Well, that section where he deals with cutting off the hand and plucking out the eye that you otherwise, with your entire body and really your soul, would go into the hell of fire. Better to lose an eye than to lose your body and your soul to hell. Better to lose a hand than your whole body. So you see the The reality is he started here by pointing out the humility of small children as an illustration that that's what you need to be like in your reception of truth. He goes on to use this term, little ones, little ones who believe in me. And he says this, and this is where we get the idea of neglecting them with a disinterest in discipleship. Verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Let's talk about how that can flesh out. New believer. Doesn't know much about the sovereignty of God. Doesn't have a real solid soteriology. Maybe he uses terminology that's not reflected in Scripture. Maybe it's very Arminian. Maybe it's just wrong on a number of levels. And to despise that little one would be to criticize him. Rather than saying, you know what? Praise God, he loves the Lord. Praise God, he's reading his Bible. Praise God, he's asking questions. 
Praise God, he's showing up for discipleship. He's gotten involved in a family group. He comes to the worship service. He's talking about serving. Praise God for that. Yeah, but I don't know. He's all millennial. <laughs> or does he even know what that means? You know, I was talking to him about how we're pre-trib, pre-mill, and he was like, what? So I don't know. <laughs> That's a little scary to me. Really? How about this? How about does he love Jesus? How about telling him that the absolute best thing about the Anchor Bible Church, you wonder what the best thing about our church is? You ever wonder that? You ever tell people what the best thing about our church is? You know what it is? It's Jesus. Not you and me. I certainly hope not. Not me. You nurture that? You know, are you looking for opportunities to, to stir little ones' love for Christ by just holding them proverbially, being patient, looking for opportunities to share truth, maybe going through a short, small book, or for those who are aggressively interested in becoming the next John MacArthur, a little bit bigger book, maybe going through a catechism together, learning a song, nurturing service. That's what doulos is for. That's why we have doulos. That those in that age category who sometimes can kind of get off the rails for various opportunities in life with distractions, that there might be a, another time of focusing in on what it means to be devoted to Christ and his church. New sheep are messy and clumsy and difficult, and they need help. And it's not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And so you and I have the privilege in that not only is the outcome ordained by God, the means are ordained by God. And the means are to go after the runaway believer. The, either the new convert or the one who has never been taught well or the one who has been taught well but, it's, but has rejected it for a number of years. So as I said, this sheds a lot of light now on verses 15 through 18. This is not about running people off. It's about maturing the immature. It's about helping those who are toddling to learn to walk. If your brother, your little brother, sins against you, either directly or indirectly, tell him. And if he's new, it may be the first time anyone's ever done that. So be delicate. Be careful. Go privately. It's an act of love. If you can't do it in love, his sin might not be the problem. It very likely might be yours. It might be that you've misinterpreted his conduct to be sin when maybe it's actually not. Maybe it's a log in your eye that's obstructed your vision. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Don't despise the little ones. Don't become annoyed with a new believer's sin and write him off. Love him. 
love him. If he listens to you, you've gained him. It's restoration. You rejoice. You rejoice with him. You rejoice with the body. In fact, you rejoice over him or her more than those who have shown spiritual maturity and spiritual stability. And it's very likely that they, the ones who are mature, were the little ones some time ago, right? Not just likely. It's certain. Every mature believer was once a little one who sinned in a way that probably annoyed some crotchety old people. Don't be a crotchety old person. There's a solid theological statement for you. How's that? You can quote me on that. Don't do that. You know, if you've never recognized that you were that little one, the spiritually immature, you probably still are. If you're in the faith at all. You want to get that spiritual little one to the place where he can say, when I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. That's the goal. <laughs> but the, you know, the person who continues to just be childish doesn't want to acknowledge his childishness, wants everybody to think that he's spiritually mature. He, he needs love. He needs the restorative process. This is a struggle for those who have had some significant responsibility as adults, and then God saves them, and nobody ever helps them to realize that they're spiritually infants. They need care. They need diapers. They need a baby bottle. They need a nap and a lot of instruction and discipline and love and patience and grace. And listen, if you've never had that, you might not want to give it. I'm pretty convinced that most people in evangelicalism have never experienced this kind of care. And so they start to receive it and they think it's weird. Oh, you're a little too pushy. You know, don't get in my kitchen. Um, I, don't, you know, I don't really know you. The only spiritual growth that you will ever observe will be the result of relational interaction with people. Too often the, the person who either wants to be a part of the body of Christ or even is a part of the body of Christ is just not welcome. And there's not a lot he or she can do about that. It's a matter of the body of Christ maturing all the more. Think of it. How mature would you be, those of you who are actually mature, how mature would you be without having had the annoying experience of raising a spiritual little one? You say, wait a minute, I've never done that before. A light ought to be coming on. The spiritually difficult process of discipleship is not exclusively for the maturity of the one being discipled. Any parents out there? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. I was a great parent till I had kids. <laughs> it's the need that is internally permanent in your heart for your children to do well that forces you to recognize your failures and your weaknesses. And the parent who only ever always blames everything on the child and never really takes responsibility for himself is not going to have any significant influence on his kids. Not positive influence anyway. God's compassion 
results in man's compassion. God's willingness to extend grace and mercy in a person necessarily results in that person's willingness, really passion to extend that same mercy and grace to others unless you've been bamboozled by a false gospel. Right? Then you start getting critical of others. A friend told me years ago when Dawson was very small, you know, just so you know, you know, your kids aren't going to like you until they're about six months old. I said, oh, okay. He says, yeah, and this, this, this guy has a lot of kids, something. He's probably an expert. And uh, he says, yeah, that's just kind of how it works. And um, that didn't happen so much with Dawson and maybe a little bit with the others, but Silas set the record. Silas really didn't like me. Let's just be honest. Now, I know most kids uh, go through some phase like this, I think. You know, they know who feeds them. They know who's really doing the hour-by-hour investment, Right? Uh, but he got to be about two and a half years old, and I was getting a little concerned. <clears throat> he'd be playing, you know, and he'd look up, and if Kimberly wasn't in the room, he'd say, where's mommy? You know, like uh, if he didn't find her within 10 or 15 seconds, he was going to think about moving out. <clears throat> so my natural response would be to say, well, she's in your nose. Because I'm like, I'll show him, Right? And, of course, he would say, no, her isn't. <laughs> and I'd say, you're right. <laughs> you're right. I'm so silly. She's not in your nose. She moved to Africa. <laughs> and he knows Africa's a long ways away because I've been there a couple times. <laughs> uh, no, she's actually in the bathroom hiding from you, you know. <laughs> so, anyway, one day I'm, uh, you know, I'm usually up early. And uh, one day I'm, I'm up and sitting in the chair. And, and normally Silas would walk in and he would stand there, you know, with that four-year-old uh, I don't know where I am, look on his face, because he just woke up, and, and um, usually he, he would say, where's mommy? And, you know, we'd go through that series of me having fun, him not having fun, and, and then uh, I eventually tell, tell him where she is, and he goes, and so that, that's happening, you know, where's mommy? And I, I, I said, well, she's in bed, and uh, he says, oh. He stands there and looks at me, and he slowly walks toward me, and he crawls up on my lap, and I'm thinking, Oh, we've crossed the threshold. <laughs> he really likes me. So I'm smiling, and he looks at me, and he stares for a few seconds, and I'm just smiling, and he throws up on me. <laughs> yeah, full tilt. Just a full thing. I'll just say it that way. And he gets down and he says, I'm going to go find mommy. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, you, you do that. <laughs> so yesterday morning, I was walking down the hallway. This was yesterday. And there he is coming toward me wearing one of my T-shirts. Aw, yeah. It's that four-year-old. I just woke up, look. And I say, hey, buddy, how'd you sleep? You sleep okay? He says, yeah, but I wanted you to lay down with me. And I said, well, I did. You slept next to me last night. <laughs> and he says, but I didn't want you to leave. It takes a while, right? But eventually, those in whom you invest your life come around, right? They know where your heart is. They know you love them. It takes some time, and that's how it is with little ones, and that's how it is with spiritual little ones. 
Don't be annoyed. Don't be annoyed with little ones because they don't receive your efforts to invest in them right away. It might take months. They might think you're weird. You might be weird. Do you ever think of that? Do you ever wonder if you're weird? That's totally off the subject. I was just wondering. If you're not interested in investing in little ones, you really shouldn't be addressing their sin. Because the fact that you despise them shows that you're one of them at best. But you're certainly not in a position to raise them up to maturity. You should be confident in the Lord that his children will hate their sin. You should be willing to invest in sinners. J.C. Ryle said, The true Christian hates sin, flees from it, fights against it, considers it his greatest plague, resents the burden of its presence, mourns when he falls under its influence, and longs to be completely delivered from it. That's what the true Christian does. And so when he's confronted with his sin, he's grateful. Now, I'm not saying little ones are always so happy to hear you say, hey, can we talk? I've seen some things. And please don't think this is about you being the church watchdog. You know, got my clipboard, two pens, ready to go here. I'm watching, counting, keeping track, keeping a record of wrongs. That is the exact opposite, really, of what we're talking about. J.C. Ryle also said, True belief in Christ is the unreserved trust of a heart convinced of sin in Christ as an all-sufficient Savior. It is the combined act of the entire person's mind, conscience, heart, and will. It is often so weak and feeble at first that they who have it cannot be persuaded that they have it. And yet, like life in the newborn infant, their belief may be real, genuine, saving, and true. The moment that the conscience is convinced of sin and the head sees Christ to be the only one who can save, and the heart and will lay hold on the hand that Christ holds out, that moment there is saving faith. In that moment, a person truly believes, end quote. But you can't tell because they're so riddled with a lifetime full of bad habits, many of which are evil. Even if that person's a small person, you've heard, you've heard people give testimonies and say, well, you know, I got saved when I was seven and you know, I didn't really have a drug addiction. I uh, wasn't killing anybody or robbing banks. But they're saved from the same depravity. Who knows what kind of legalistic, burdensome misconceptions were bound up in their heart. God freed them from that. God can free a seven-year-old from that. You and I have the privilege to speak the truth in love. And Paul says, by doing so, we're to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. But if he doesn't listen, right? 
the idea of the body being built up in love, each individual part being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies. But what if he doesn't listen? In other words, if he acts like an unbeliever, you may need some help helping him or her to understand. He may not understand how serious his sin is. Children don't, right? Were your kids afraid to run into the street when they were two, three, four, five? When did they become convinced? It took a while. And your efforts probably were a little bit haywire from time to time. Ah, stop! The kid's scared to death, not of cars, but of you. They don't understand. When did they actually believe that this was dangerous? If you were raising them in the discipline and admonition of the Lord, it was sometime when they began to believe what you said. They started to trust your words, not just your ability to, you know, pull something out of the microwave and put it in their face so their tummies are filled. They showed a humble willingness with some things naturally early on, you know, obtaining food, getting a diaper changed, a bottle of milk. But when the walking started, you didn't want to leave the house for fear that something bad would happen. You might have even said, can't we just keep them in the car seat everywhere we go? As long as they're strapped in, nobody gets hurt. You can't just strap new Christians to a chair. And if they run off into sin, Jesus says, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is establishing the charge that you might be able to say to that wayward runaway, new believer, we were clear with you when we established the charge. Don't tell us we weren't. There were three of us in the room. That's the idea. Sometimes parents need help, right? That's how it is in the church. Every new Christian goes wayward at some point. It's not okay, but if he's in the right context with careful, loving, nurturing discipleship, he hopefully doesn't get himself run over. But if he does, we carry him to the physician, right? We nurse him back to health. We play a role in restoring him. And many, many, many times it takes more than just one private conversation or even several one-on-one or four-on-one private conversations. It takes a spiritual medical team, a love team, a team of people who love that person enough to tell them what they have been denying, maybe even for decades. Now, maybe you sat under watered-down, wheel-spinning preaching for years, and you never really knew that if you weren't pouring into younger Christians that you weren't being faithful. You probably didn't realize that working in the kitchen or doing parking lot duty or singing in the choir or working on the custodial crew wasn't enough in and of itself. As important as all of those things are, and they are all extremely important and very noble, Every believer has the responsibility of pouring into little ones, protecting them from getting run over and preparing them for spiritual life, reproving and correcting and training them in righteousness. You see, if the little ones are only hearing from me in the pulpit, they'll grow hard-hearted. They'll think I'm the only one who thinks the things that I think. 
They'll have just enough exposure to discipleship to be inoculated by it. And especially if they see you, someone who professes to have been in the faith for decades, doing nothing to invest in little ones or worse, doing nothing and pretending to be doing something, then they will become desensitized to the concept and they'll grow further hard-hearted. Now, some might say, well, hey, now, wait a minute. I'm discipling my kids. Let's talk about that. Think about that. The people that you know who divested themselves from the joy and the benefit of actual relationships in the church and only ever really invested in their kids, how did that go? I challenge you to give me one example of where that ever went well, where the family became the central and in some cases only focus. Well, those kids grew to have the same disinterest in the church that the parents did. It became all about the family and not about Christ. Look around. The people who are growing spiritually, somebody's investing in them. Somebody's sacrificing. Somebody's addressing their sin. A.W. Pink said, here is the great difference between the unregenerate and the regenerate. The one harden themselves in their sin. The other are broken before God on account of it. Verse 17 in our text says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. You dismiss them. Yes, out of love. You turn his life over for the destruction of the flesh to Satan. Why? That he might be restored on the day of Christ. That he might recognize that he's not a member of the body of Christ. He proves he's not, and it's incumbent upon us to help him understand that rather than pretending lovelessly that he is. You do it in love. A few years ago, we dismissed a young lady, and I told her we were going to do so. Becca Bittner and I had the, really the privilege to sit down with her one final time, and, and I asked her, what more could we have done? How could we have been more gracious with you? How could we have served you better? How could we have helped you and stayed this sad, tragic reality off? She said, Todd, you've been completely gracious. You teach the Bible faithfully, and I love the people in this church, but I don't believe the Bible. You know, in a sense, she made it easy on us. There's no step four. Step three and four are the same thing, really. Telling it to the church is to tell her she no longer professes to know Christ. Let's just say she's being honest about her dishonesty. The the tragic circumstances are where a person continues to profess to know Christ but proves that he doesn't. The Lord was with us, with Becca and me and others who had approached her. He had gone before us. The division was clear. We love her. We still do. She thanked us. But we couldn't pretend she's a believer, and neither could she because we faithfully showed her God's word. We tried to 
train her up, and she showed no real evidence of being born again, of being a spiritual infant. And so she left. The Lord was with us. He had bound in heaven what we bound on earth. But let me just tell you, beloved, it doesn't take anything to be a spiritually unborn person and do a lot of activities and actually pretend to be an adult believer. It doesn't take anything to do that. And you and I need to understand that if there are spiritually unborn people in our church who remain that way for years, it's our fault. It's our fault for not surrounding them as a love-saturated spiritual medical team and give them an honest, loving, clear, accurate, grief-producing diagnosis. Mature Christians speak the truth in love. They go in private, and if the wayward person who professes to be a believer does not listen, they go back with more mature Christians. And if you're saying, well, that's somebody else's role. I'm just not a confrontational person. Replace the word confrontational with loving. Please. Say this, say, I'm willing to despise the little ones. They annoy me with all their petty little attitudes. They don't say things right. They get in the way. They don't sing the songs right. They sit in my chair. Years ago, when I pastored a singles ministry, I went to a group of older ladies, about 12 of them. They'd been at this church for a long time. And I said, ladies, there are a lot of women in our ministry who need discipleship. There are a lot of women who are divorced. Some of them are single mothers. Uh, some of them are barely making it financially. They're scared. They're frightened. They want to get married. They need discipleship. And the leader of the group stood up and looked at me in front of the rest of them and said, Todd, We've been down that stage of life. We just want to play bridge together. That's a quote. They had never experienced this love themselves. They didn't know what discipleship looked like. It was the result of so much focus on what's called age-graded ministry. You know? The kindergartners hang out together, the first graders, the third graders, the sixth graders. That's fine because that's probably necessary. But then you start getting to be young adults, you know, and then you have the young marriage class, and then you have uh, the older adults class, and then you have the, the Dorcas class, right? Some of you remember that. And so everybody gets segregated, and nobody disciples anybody like you see in 1 John, like you see with Paul and Timothy, Paul and Silas, Paul and Epaphroditus, Barnabas and Mark. Beloved, we're surrounded by buildings that are filled every Saturday with legalistic task doers, Saturday after Saturday. But there are just as many that meet Sunday after Sunday committed to conduct. But what about us? 
This is not power play to get you to do more, unless you're watching a lot of TV. I have to say that. YouTube, you know, you know the whole thing. If you're just wasting a lot of time, then yeah, you, you need to stop doing that. You know that. But are you trusting that where two or more of you are gathered, the Lord is with you as you attempt to discover and deliver what he has bound in heaven? You know, the simple way to say it is, are you fearing man more than you're fearing God? Are you willing to love the one who professes to be a believer but acts like an unbeliever with a significant pattern? Are you willing to go to him privately and trust the Lord to win your brother or sister? If she or he won't listen, are you willing to go back with one or two witnesses? Are you willing to point out that he or she is acting like an unbeliever? Are you willing to do it in love? Are you willing to pray fervently? Are you willing to fast for this person's soul? Are you willing to visit with that person? Make the phone call? Continue to make the effort, striving with the wayward sinner whom you love? You know, Paul did this publicly with Peter. He said he opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. I suppose Paul wondered whether or not he was a false convert. He used the word condemned. There's something to that. There's no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and Paul says, Peter, you appear to be condemned. Your conduct certainly is condemnable, Peter. Did it publicly in front of at least other elders. Second Peter 3, 15, he says, count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. Wouldn't that be awesome if there were more of that amongst mature Christians to actually look each other in the eye and lovingly say what needs to be said and the response is not prideful and defensive? And again, I'm not saying Peter wasn't prideful and defensive in the moment. We don't know. But we know that he certainly came around. He referred to Paul as his beloved brother. Paul and Barnabas had ministered together through thick and thin it was Barnabas who created the handshake between Paul and the rightfully skeptical apostles. They disagreed vehemently over John Mark and his worth, so much so that they parted ways. And years after Paul had split from Barnabas, somewhere along the way, as recorded in Colossians 4.10, Paul says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas's cousin Mark about whom he received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. He didn't despise little Mark. He trusted Barnabas with him, and he waited, and he prayed, and he trusted, and God did that work in Mark. And then at the end of Paul's life, he says, pick up Mark and bring him with you for he's useful to me. Listen, I know what it's like to be useless. I know what it's like to sit across from a mature Christian and for him to say to me, Todd, you need at least six months to start becoming useful. I needed that. I desperately needed it. Mark 
desperately needed it. Peter desperately needed it. And you know from 2 Peter 1 where Peter says, be certain of your calling and your election. And then he goes on to talk about how to avoid becoming fruitless, useless. Peter got the bug. We said that the caught must be taught. They must be nurtured under the place where they're teaching others who are caught, that they're sharing all good things with those who teach them, but they're investing in little ones. They, they need help. They desperately need help. They desperately need someone to invest in them. Jesus calls you and me to forgive. See, while we have this call upon our lives to address people's sin, we're called to forgive immeasurably. Forgive with countless compassion for your brother's restoration. Countless compassion. Peter wanted to count the sins. Lord, now, when my brother sins against me, how many times should I forgive him? Seven? The rabbinic tradition was three. The fourth time, you weren't required to forgive someone. The fourth time, they sinned against you. So Peter doubled it and added one and thought he was being pretty noble. And Jesus says, no, depending upon how you translate the term, it's either 70 times 7 or 77. Either way, who have you ever been sinned against by 77 times in the same day? The point is, Forgive with no limitations. Forgive with countless compassion for your brother's restoration and forgive with Christ-like compassion for your brother's restoration. I want to share with you the words of, uh, of a woman who sometime back told me about the difficulties of her marriage from a very young age. She said countless nights she would be at home with their infant daughter while he was out committing adultery. It went on for months. She told me she read one night from Psalm 51, Psalm 51, verses 3 and 4. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. She said, I was stunned to discover that my sin was all against God and it was every bit as wicked as my husband's sins. My sin of discontentment, covetousness, pride, anger. So I forgave him. And I began to pray, to really pray. And while I hoped God would change him overnight, he certainly didn't, but he began to change him. Eventually, he softened his heart. And he came home one night and said, I can't do this anymore. And I'm sorry. I've been a fool. And I want to start over. And they did. And today, they serve the Lord together faithfully. And you and I, you and I knowing God not only says he does that, but he actually does do it. We ought to be able to sing these words together. 
Oh, to see the dawn of the darkest day, Christ on the road to Calvary. Tried by sinful men, torn and beaten then, nailed to a cross of wood. This, the power of the cross, Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath. We stand forgiven at the cross. Oh, to see the pain written on your face, bearing the awesome weight of sin. Every bitter thought, every evil deed crowning your blood-stained brow. Now the daylight flees, now the ground beneath quakes as its maker bows his head. Curtain torn in two, dead are raised to life, finished the victory cry. This, the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath, We stand forgiven at the cross. Oh, to see my name written in the wounds, for through your suffering I am free. Death is crushed to death. Life is mine to live, won through your selfless love. This, the power of the cross, Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath. We stand forgiven at the cross. Father, we pray that just as our Savior has granted forgiveness to us with fierce compassion, that we too would not only be willing to raise little ones up to hate their sin and gain victory over their sin, but that we would be willing to forgive them countless times, that we would display the fierce compassion of Christ in our own hearts for the sake of our brother's restoration and that we would do so with whole, filled, and joyous hearts. It's in his name we pray, amen.